hey, good morning, New Life Fellowship. Really good to be here in the house of the Lord with you this uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, we are going to be starting a brand new series today called Christmas Essentials. Uh, and it's during our Advent series. Uh, Advent, if you don't know, are the four weeks preceding uh, Christmas. And today is the first day of Advent. And traditionally, historically in the church, what churches would do during the season of Advent was really talk about the first coming of Christ, um, excuse me, uh, to really talk about the first coming of Christ in order to anticipate his second coming. And so we talk about joy, hope, love, and peace, these attributes that Christ brought with him uh, to earth when he was first born uh, and anticipating the second coming of Christ. But what we thought we'd do for this uh, series was really talk about the essentials of Christianity and really talk about why it is that we believe Christmas to be true and real and why it is that it's not a fantasy, it's not fiction, it's not sci-fi, but rather it's real, it's historical, and it actually happened. And so what we hope to do over the next four weeks is essentially make a claim that Jesus Christ is alive and well. And we're going to do this in four steps. Today, we're going to be simply asking the question of why should I believe there is a God to begin with? Um, you know, forget about the fact that Jesus Christ is his God for now. Let's just talk about why is there a God to begin with. And so we'll talk about that today. We won't get to Jesus Christ quite yet. Uh, but in the next two weeks, what we will talk about is why is Jesus Christ this God? And why do we believe that he is the only God? And why do we believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Uh, and then in our final week, we're going to be studying why, uh, how it is that we can actually follow this Jesus. Uh, so maybe we do believe that there is a God. Maybe we do intellectually ascend to the fact that Jesus Christ is this God. Uh, well, then the last step would be how can we follow him? How can we pursue this living God? Uh, and so um, I want to be sort of honest at the, for, uh, at the forefront of what this sermon series can and can't do. Uh, the first thing it will do is if you're a Christian in here, uh, whether you're a doubting Christian, whether you're a skeptical Christian, but you say, you know what, I still believe Jesus is Lord and Savior, or whether or not you're like, I don't care about any evidence, I just believe Jesus is God, like, and, and I'm forever going to hold to that. Wherever you are on the spectrum, my hope is that today's sermon will actually uh, encourage you, will actually bring you a lot of faith. We'll be like, wow, like, I didn't know this about my faith, but man, that's, this is good to know. Like, and I'm really encouraged, and I really believe there's God now. Uh, for, for those of you who call yourself skeptical, or maybe you're not a Christian in here, um, for those of you in here, what I hope to do with you is to really just whet your appetites about Christianity. Uh, meaning this, um, you know, like when you go to Costco, you get a little sample, and what they're trying to do is they're just trying to get you to get a little bit hungry. Uh, that's our hope. Our hope is to just get you a little bit hungry about Jesus. Uh, and, and our hope is to really invite you to something that we're calling Alpha starting in January 19th, which is a Thursday, and then for 10 successive weeks on Thursday nights at 6.30 p.m., uh, we're going to be hosting a course called Alpha. And this is a course that really walks you through all the nitty-gritties of Christianity and why we believe what we believe and the evidence behind why we believe and what we believe. And so whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, you can come out to this. If you're a doubt, uh, doubter, skeptical, whatever it is, you can come out to this class. But especially if you're a Christian, we ask that you bring a non-Christian friend with you. But our hope is a journey for 10 weeks, um, and, and, but, but the hope is to really build relationships. It's not just about a transference of information, but it's really about a time for us to deepen our relationships with each other. Uh, and so midway, or about towards the end of Alpha, we're actually going to host a, a mid uh, sort of uh, uh, kind of retreat, uh, and where we're going to host all the Alpha people. And uh, it'll be a weekend on the Holy Spirit and really talking about uh, what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Uh, and so if you're interested in that, um, uh, we'll, we'll have signups for that very, very soon. Um, but, um, but, but please keep an eye out for that. Uh, I, want, I do want to show you a quick promo, so take a look at the screens for Alpha. 
makes me want to go to Alpha myself. Hopefully you come too. Um, uh, but yeah, Alpha, Alpha is simply a place where we share dinner. So we'll have dinner every week. Um, we'll, we'll watch a video together on, on why Christianity is real and, and some of the evidence behind it. And then we'll just have discussions and fellowship and a time of sharing. And the hope is that whether or not you come to faith or whether you, you remain agnostic about your faith or whatever it is, uh, our hope is that we build friendships, uh, that we um, just share lives with each other. And so um, if anything, hopefully we have a, form, uh, a few more friends at the very end of that time. Um, but during this sermon series as well, what I, what I do want to share is this. There's a sentiment going around in our modern culture that Christianity is, uh, again, like a fairy tale. That only, um, you know, stupid people can sort of believe in this religion called Christianity. Uh, and that the more knowledge you acquire, the more modern we become, the more thinking we become, the more and more we'll realize that this is just all a fantasy. And yet what I hope to do and show at the very least in this sermon series is to show you that Christianity thinks a lot. That there's a lot of reasons and rationale behind our faith. That it's not just a simply a blind leap into the abyss, but rather there are a ton of reasons why we believe God is alive and well and why Jesus is this God. All right. So with that said, we're going to read from Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 20. If at this time, would you rise as we read God's word together? We don't do this out of magic or mysticism. It's rather just we, we believe these are the words of God, so we read it uh, by honoring it as we stand. And so we'll be reading these uh, short verses here. I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God at the end of the reading, and then I'll pray over our time, and then I'll seat you after uh, the prayer. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us and I'll seat you. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time together. Holy Spirit, would you come and open up our hearts, open up our minds. Even for those of us who are tuning in online, Lord, would you help us? Or listening to this Vibe podcast at a later time, Lord, would you even open up our hearts even now, Lord, to receive you, to know, Lord, that you are real, alive, well, and working. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, so we have three points. I normally have three points. Um, the first point is called suppressing the truth. Uh, the second point is called eternal power. And then our last point is called divine nature. And it's all based on Romans 1 as a passage, right? Uh, in 2009, there was really a groundbreaking conversion. Uh, there was a, f a guy, a fellow by the name of A.N. Wilson, who was a British intellectual and writer who was an atheist, and he converted to Christianity. And he wrote an article in a publication called The New Statesman. It's a British political journal. And uh, in it, he talks about his conversion experience. He was born a Roman Catholic. Uh, he uh, kind of dabbled a little bit in Anglicanism. Uh, but eventually left the faith altogether, was fed up with Christianity altogether. Um, but then after uh, most of his adult life being uh, an atheist, he came back in 2009 and reconverted again to Christianity. And I want you to listen to what he says here, okay, in this article, okay. He says, I realized that after a lifetime of church going, the house of cards had collapsed for me. The sense of God's presence in life and the notion that there was any kind of God, let alone a merciful God, in this brutal, nasty world. As for Jesus having been the founder of Christianity, this idea seemed perfectly preposterous insofar as we can discern anything about Jesus from the existing documents 
he believed that the world was about to end as did all the first Christians so how could he have possibly intended to start a new religion for Gentiles let alone establish a church or instituted the sacraments it was a nonsense together with the idea of a personal God or a loving God in a suffering universe nonsense 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 and a lot of this he details actually in two books that he published, one in 1992 and one in 1999. Uh, the one in 1992 was called uh, uh, Jesus, A Life, and then the second one was called God's Funeral. And in these, he talks a lot about his anti-faith stance and why he stopped believing. But then in 2009, when he published um, this New Statesman article and talked about his conversion, I want you to listen to what he says here because it's beautiful. And, and I actually want to parse apart what he says about his conversion. And mind you now, his conversion um, was not uh, this kind of road to Damascus experience where all of a sudden he saw it and all of a sudden he was a believer. But rather he calls it a, a gradual process, a journey if you would. Uh, where, and, and even till this day he would say that he's still learning and growing in his faith. But nonetheless he's, he, he feels like he will never turn back to atheism. And I encourage you, if you can find the article online, it's New Statesman, Ian Wilson. Uh, go read the, the whole article. It's a beautiful article where he talks about a lot about his new atheist friends and the, the culture that existed there and all these sorts of things. But let me just read to you this quote, okay? He says, when I think about atheist friends, this is after his conversion now. When I think about atheist friends, including my father, they seem to me like people who have no ear for music or who have never been in love. It is not that as they believe they have rambled, rumbled the tremendous fraud of religion. Prophets do that in every generation. Rather, these unbelievers are simply missing out on something that is not difficult to grasp. Perhaps it is too obvious to understand. Obvious as lovers feel it was obvious that they should have come together. Or obvious as the final resolution of a fugue. I want to break apart that statement into two parts, okay? In the first part, what he's simply saying is this. He's saying it's not enough to poke holes into Christianity. Everybody can do that. Uh, he says even prophets can do that. In other words, I'm sure you, you've all heard of this movement called the deconstruction movement, right? Uh, one of the most popular deconstructionists is a guy named Abraham uh, Piper. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Abraham Piper, John Piper's son, right? He does these uh, deconstructionist uh, TikToks on, on, on TikTok, right? Where he does 15 minute seconds on why Christianity is false and he pokes all these holes, right? And he's basically saying that's not enough for you to stop believing though. He says prophets have been doing this for generations and generations. In fact, I would encourage you, go read Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Uh, go read any of the prophets and they're always deconstructing their faith. Because deconstruction is necessary. We have to reform. We have to revitalize our faith at different times. In fact, I would argue this. Jesus Christ himself deconstructed um, faith. Right? Do you guys remember? We'll, we'll actually be studying this in January. But in the Sermon on the Mount... He talks about how you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But let me tell you, that's deconstruction. He's deconstructing his faith. He's poking holes. He's showing how things are not as they seem, right? And so in some sense, what Ian Wilson is saying is it's not enough to just poke holes at Christianity. Yes, everyone can do that. Anyone can do that. But that's not, not enough for you to lose your faith. And but rather what he says, look, faith is so obvious. God is so obvious. It's obvious as two lovers coming together, he says. And that's the second part that I want to highlight. Look, I, I don't know if you've ever had this, right? But have you ever had um, a, a group of friends, right? Um, and, and let's just say there's, I'm just going to make up these names. But let's just say there's Joe and Susie, okay? They're part of your friend group. And you've been noticing Joe really likes Susie, right? And you're like, okay, I can pretty much tell. So you go up to Joe and you're like, hey, Joe, you like Susie, don't you? And he's like, no, 
What are you talking about, Susie? So I grew up with her, man. She's like my sister, dude. Yuck. I can't even imagine being in a relationship with her. What are you talking about? And you're like, are you sure, man? Like, cause I, he's like, well, wh wh why? Why do you think I like her? And you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. You, you, don't, you have no words to describe it. But you're just like, oh, you know, like, I, just the way you guys talk to each other, the way you lean in. I, I don't know. Just you do. And then, and then after that conversation's over, you go to the other friends. You're like, hey, Joe likes Susie, right? And they're like, yeah, dude, totally. He likes Susie. He's like, but he's in denial, blah, blah, right? Have you guys ever experienced that? But then six months later, right, Joe and Susie are dating. And you're like, Joe, I told you, man, you like Susie. He's like, yeah, I was in denial, dude. Like, you know, I didn't know, right? It's obvious. It's obvious for, for everyone. And oftentimes, the most obvious things are actually the hardest things to articulate because they're obvious. They're just there. They're in front of you. And this is sort of what uh, 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 Ann Wilson is getting at. He's saying that faith in God is just obvious at times. And this is what Romans 1 is talking about. When Paul writes this, he's writing a long, um, sort of he's beginning a long argumentation about why it is that we need Jesus. And one of the first things that he wants to tell us is that it's plain. It's simple. It's obvious that God is well and alive. Look at verse 19. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, I do have to mention this, right? As we read this passage, there's words like wrath, unrighteousness, right? Um, these kinds of harsh words. And, and, and what Paul is trying to do in this really big argumentation, right? Because this goes on for about three chapters, is he's trying to, like an artist, paint dark colors, right? Because he wants the bright colors to pop. He wants to accentuate the brightness of the gospel. And so he's got to take the, the dark colors and sort of paint over them as well. And so that's what he's doing in chapter 1. He's kind of painting a bleak picture of humanity. And he's showing us why it is that we need Jesus Christ. So don't be discouraged by this harsh language. What Paul is trying to do is show the grace and love of Jesus Christ, which is all the more. And he starts by essentially saying that God is obvious, God is plain. And those unbelievers who don't believe simply suppress the truth. Verse 18, he says it, suppress the truth. Now, I don't think that if you were to ask an atheist or a non-believer that they would say, I'm suppressing the truth right now. You know, they, they wouldn't say that. But I think the way that this works is something that Tim Keller talks about uh, in his book, The Reason for God. He says something to this effect. He says to doubt your doubts. And what he means by that is this. Uh, right, let, let, me give, let me give you an illustration and then kind of explain it, okay? Uh, have you ever noticed that it's so easy to criticize something else than yourself? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's so easy to criticize, like, your parents, but, but then when you become a parent, you're so gracious to yourself. Like, let me, let me give you an example from my own life, right? I always complain, my dad didn't spend enough time with me. He was so busy, blah, blah. But now that I'm a parent, I'm busy. I don't have enough time to spend with my kids, right? But yet, I'm so gracious to myself. I'm so angry at my parents. Oh, you never spend time with me. But then I'm like, oh, but I don't have enough time. Like, I'm so busy. I'm serving God. I'm so gracious to myself. We criticize other people, but we're so gracious and kind to ourselves. And what Tim Keller is essentially saying is, do the same thing with your doubts. We're so hard on Christianity, right? We, we scrutinize Christianity. We're like, okay, prove this, prove this, prove this. But then when it comes to our own beliefs, we're like, I don't got to prove anything. And Tim Keller's like, well, wait a second. Like, you believe something too. Everyone's got a theology. You got to prove what you believe too. So, so yeah, scrutinize Christianity, but you got to scrutinize your own beliefs with just the same amount of scrutiny that you do Christianity. So let me give you an example, right? Um, let's, take, let's take theology. Okay, everybody in the world has a theology. Did you know that? Everyone has a theology. Theology just simply means the study of God. Everyone has an idea about God. Everybody does. 
But my question is, where do you get your idea from God? Christians say we get it from Scripture. We get it from the Bible, okay? And in, in a few weeks, we will talk about the reliability of Scripture, why we believe Scripture tells us the truth. And we have evidence for this, okay? But if, you're, if you have a theology, right, your theology could be as simple as there is no God. Or your theology could be there is a God, but He's distant and far and mysterious, and I can know nothing about Him, maybe an agnostic position. But nonetheless, you have a theology. Where did you get your theology from? You're getting it from somewhere. You have to ground that somehow. You have to show evidence for your position just as much as we have to show evidence for Christianity. Does that make sense? Just as much as you scrutinize Christianity, you should scrutinize your own beliefs. Listen to what Tim Keller says in The Reason of God. He says, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts and then, and then to ask yourself what reasons you have for believing it. How do you know your belief is true? It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. But that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. My thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians uh, for theirs, you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. Let me put it still a different way. You can deconstruct Christianity all you want. You can poke holes in it, but then poke holes in your own beliefs too. It's only fair. Right? You can't just attack one side. You've got to attack the other side too, to be fair. Okay? Um, so let's go back now. Let's talk a little bit about this obviousness. Okay? Look at what Paul goes on to say about this obviousness. Okay? Look in verse 20. He says, God is plain. Uh, God is uh, there. Uh, people suppress the truth. And then verse 20, listen to what he says. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so what he's saying is this okay i get it god is invisible oh we, we can all agree on that god is invisible no one's ever seen god okay but he says we can still clearly perceive god in all the things of nature that were created in all of creation in his divine power and his eternal uh, in his divine nature and his eternal power let me give you an illustration okay Imagine uh, you live with a roommate or you live with your mom or your dad or you live with a brother or sister, whatever, okay? You live with somebody. You come home. You find all these pots and pans in the, the sink. They're all dirty. They have marinara sauce everywhere. You see chopped vegetables. You kind of see like some ground meat. You see some pasta noodles in, in the pot, right? You see all these things, right? And, and, and you look around and so you go into the refrigerator. You open up the refrigerator and, and you see a Tupperware of leftover spaghetti sauce and noodles, right? You've never seen your roommate make the spaghetti. You've never seen your mom and dad make the spaghetti. They, they were invisible in some sense, but you can clearly perceive that somebody made spaghetti. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, yes, we can't see God, but we can perceive all of the works that he's ever done. We can see it pretty clearly, in fact. This is why it's plain and obvious to us. And so what I want to do in points two and three is really talk about these two aspects, the eternal power and the divine nature that we can see and clearly perceive throughout all of creation and throughout even just our human experiences as just living. And so let's move on to our second point, the eternal power. The idea of eternal power is that God is not only eternal, but he's eternally powerful, that his power extends across all time and all space. And this clearly comes to us in two lines of argumentation. I'm going to give it names, but I'll just, but, but, but let, let, me, let, me, let me pause for a second and, and, and kind of share a little bit of my own story, okay? What I'm going to share with you next is kind of my own story in, in some sense. These, these are the reasons why I believe. Um, I, there, there are a thousand things that I could share with you today. There are so many things that we could share about, but in all honesty, this was my journey. I grew up in the church. Um, I was born into the church. My, my mom was a Christian. My dad wasn't. 
Um, but when I really started taking my faith seriously was in college. And during college time, uh, I grew up in a very conservative household. I went to the University of Washington. And when I got to the University of Washington, a lot of my conservative worldview was challenged for good things. Right? In other words, I went through a deconstruction phase, an immense one. I've shared this a few times, but my deconstruction got so bad that I literally went up to a tree and I said, okay, Jesus, if you're alive and well, make this tree die. You said if you pray and you have faith that the tree will die, it will die. So I stand at UW and I touch the tree and I pray that the tree would die. I'm sure thousands of people who saw me probably thought I was mentally unstable at the time. But nonetheless, these are the kinds of things that I did. I would even pray like, God, would you give me like force powers? You can do anything you want. Like close the bathroom door while I'm pooping. I, I'm being serious. This is all honesty. Like I would be pooping. I'd be like, God, give me powers, right? If you're real and alive, like do this, right? But, but over time, similar to Ann Wilson, it, it wasn't a moment. It wasn't even like a single thing. But it was over a progression of time where a gradual process where I began studying why is it that God is real. And here are some of the reasons why I think it's real. And really came down to Romans 1. And so I'm sharing with you things that have helped me in the past to really reconcile how I can believe that there is a God. And so the first one is this, right? Just imagine that there's nothing. Imagine nothingness, okay? What comes out of nothing? Nothing comes out of nothing. Nothing can produce anything. Uh, what's, what's zero times one? Zero. What's zero times ten? Zero. What's zero times a hundred? Zero. <laughs> it's the easiest math test you'll ever get, okay? What's zero times a thousand? I love those math questions, by the way. The one where zero, right? Because nothing can come out of nothing. And so if there was nothing to begin with, we should still have nothing. But we have something. We have something. We have things. And because there are things, everything has a cause to it, which means that there had to have been a first cause. So, so here, here's what we're left with, right? Look, look at this, right? I'll try to make this really simple, but either time, matter, and space were infinite and uncreated. Right? In other words, either, okay, because we have something, it either means that this something was eternal. All of the stuff that we see in the universe was eternal. Or it means that there was an infinite being who created everything, who is eternal. Does that make sense? Something had to have been eternal because we have something. Because out of nothing comes nothing. It's just really simple. Okay? So, but now here, here's, here's where I was really just blown away by this. You have to think about this, right? When I was a, when I was a, a, a young conservative Christian and growing up in my own little Christian bubble, People told me the Big Bang Theory was the reason why, like, it's from the devil, like, don't believe it, right? It tells you that the earth is millions and billions of years old, like, don't, don't believe the Big Bang Theory, it disproves God, blah, blah. But actually, did you know that the Big Bang Theory actually proves that God exists? Did you know that the Big Bang Theory actually shows you that there was a time where there was nothing in the universe and then something came out of that nothing? Um, let me read to you from uh, Norman Geisler and uh, Frank Turek. They wrote a, a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. But listen to what they say about Albert Einstein, okay? Because Albert Einstein was really the one who started the theory of general relativity, which then led to the Big Bang Theory, okay? Which is now proven to decimal places, okay? It was 1916, and Albert Einstein didn't like where his calculations were leading him. If his theory of general relativity was true, it meant that the universe was not eternal but had a beginning, See that, like he was, uh, he, Albert Einstein wanted to know that the, that the world, time, matter, space, everything was eternal. He wanted to believe that, but his calculations were actually coming to a place now where he had to submit to the idea that the universe had a beginning. There was nothing and then there was something. 
Einstein's calculations indeed were revealing a definite beginning to all time, all matter, and all space. This flew in the face of his belief that the universe was static and eternal. And over time, they've been able to prove and show, like literally scientists have been able to observe our universe expanding. And what that means is that our universe had a beginning. Right? So if you could take a videotape and if you could record all of history, right, and you were just to rewind it backwards, right, you would see the, uh, sorry, if you were to go forward, you would see the universe expanding. But then you'd also conversely see the universe shrinking, almost down uh, to the size of nothing, basically. It would shrink, 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 shrink until it became nothing at all. In fact, did you know that the, the, second and, uh, the first and second laws of thermodynamics tell us that there's only in finite use of, uh, a finite amount of energy in the world? And so, in other words, think about a gas, right? Uh, if, if a gas is going to run out of uh, this car, the universe is going to run out of gas someday. There, there will come a time where we will run out of all usable energy in the world. And that means that there had to be a beginning to all of this where there was a full tank of gas. In fact, they predicted in 1948, scientists predicted that if the Big Bang Theory had actually occurred, that we would see these, actually, these sort of, um, uh, these, uh, these afterglow effects of the Big Bang Theory of the Big Bang. And in fact, they discovered it by accident. They found these radioactive uh, little seismic activities like, expanding out into the universe just by accident. There was a guy named Penzias and Wilson who stumbled by on this radiation by accident. And then finally, they determined, okay, if the Big Bang did really happen, then you know what? You, we, we have to believe that there are going to be these ripples. This is just scientifically right. There has to be these ripples. And then guess what? They found these ripples. NASA created, created a program called COBE. And their one uh, task was to find these ripples that the Big Bang had created. And listen to what it says here. Not only, found, uh, not only did they find the ripples, but scientists were amazed at their precision. The ripples showed that the explosion and expansion of the universe was precisely tweaked to cause just enough matter to congregate to allow galaxy formation, but not enough to cause the universe to collapse back on itself. Any slight variation one way or the other, and none of us would be here to tell about it. In fact, the ripples are so exact, down to one part in 100,000, that Smoot, he's one of the scientists, called them the machining marks from the creation of the universe. And by the way, he's not a Christian. Smoot's not a Christian. And the fingerprints of the maker. There was a guy named uh, Robert Jastrow who was not a Christian and died not a Christian. Um, uh, and, and he was an agnostic his whole life. Um, but he was a physicist, and he was a NASA physicist. In fact, he was the Edwin Hubble Chair at Mount Wilson Observatory and the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies. And he wrote a book called God and the Astronomer, where he talks about all of this evidence. And listen to what his conclusion is based on all of this evidence. Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. He's not a Christian. He doesn't have anything to sell. He's just telling you what the data has shown him. So we have something, and this something had a beginning, and this is scientifically proven. Now, here's the second part of it. This is, it goes even deeper than this. It's what we call the teleological argument, which is a fine-tuning argument. Not only do we have something, friends, but this something is so finely tuned. It's designed. In other words, if there was a design, there should be a designer. 
Right? Imagine if you go to a beach and you walk along and you find the watch on the ground and you pick up this watch. No one ever says, oh my goodness, look at the winds, what the winds and the waves did. They smashed together this, by random chance, this watch. No one says that. It clearly has a design. It must have a designer. And in the same way, this is the argument. If there is a design, there must be a designer. Now let me put it like this, okay? Uh, I, I was talking to a, a musician friend. Uh, this was probably at least like 10 years ago, but I still remember this because he was so frustrated. And he was a musician friend who was trying to write music in LA and he was, um, uh, you know, he, he, now he does produce music, he does write music, he does make music uh, for money. And so he, he's living his dreams in, in some sense. But if you guys remember 10 years ago, there was this whole movement for uh, these cover artists, right, to put their stuff on YouTube, right? Cover Taylor Swift, uh, right, cover One Direction, cover, uh, you know, whatever bands you want, right? There was all these cover, cover, cover. And he, like, one day, I don't know why, but he just exploded. He's like, he's like, I hate all these cover bands. He's like, it's so easy to cover music. He's like, but they get all this attention because they can sing well, blah, blah, blah. But he's, like, but he's like, you know how hard it is to write a song? You know how hard it is to write a song, right? He was going on and on, but he was really getting at a principle, right? Which is this, it's easy to copy, it's harder to create. Right, this is why plagiarism is wrong, because it's easy to copy, it's hard to create. It's easy to take somebody else's term paper and just put your name at the top and submit it, right? It's harder uh, to create uh, content on your own. Think about this, okay? We've had thousands of years as humans now, and, and we've had hundreds of years, uh, you know, investigating the human body. And we have not been able to copy the human body. Think about how complex the human body is. We have not been able to copy the human body. Like, I'm not even talking about cloning. Like, just like, study the human body and then like, create it again. But did you know female bodies just produce it without them even thinking about it? Like, they make babies. This is human beings. What I'm trying to say is this, think about this. Think about how complex the human body is that we cannot even comprehend it. We're not even scratching the surface at it and we cannot replicate it because it's so complicated. Tell me why there's no designer. There is clearly a design. We can't even comprehend the design because it's so far outside of our, our reach right now. This is what the fine tuning argument is getting at. Look, think about it this way too, right? Think about our universe. Think about how complex our universe is and think about how, uh, how deadly outer space is. Right? If you go into outer space, you die. Everybody knows this, right? I don't, I don't know what will happen, but I don't want to think about what will happen, but you'll die, okay? Go into rocket space, right? Just jump out of a spaceship and then you'll die, okay? Think about how, how Earth is perfect for human habitation. Think about how perfect it is for us to inhabit. Do you know what they've had to do? NASA has had to put their best scientists, their best engineers, their best technicians to build these containers to fly people into outer space so that humans can live in this little tube. Because you need the perfect amount of CO2, you need the perfect amount of oxygen, you need the perfect amount of gravitation, right? You need all of these things to be just right so that humans can survive in outer space. It was designed. No one ever says, oh, a NASA rocket just came together all of a sudden. No, somebody designed it. Why would we then not say that the earth is designed? It's perfect for human habitation. Every single constant, every single gravitational constant, every, uh, uh, you know, the amount of CO2, the amount of temperature, right, the, right all, the tilt and the axis of the earth, everything is perfectly designed so that we can thrive. There's no other planet in the universe that we know about that's like planet Earth. Listen to what Francis Collins says. He's the, um, he's the, uh, the head of the, the Human Genome Project. Genius. Uh, he's the one that discovered all of the different codings in our DNA. And, uh, uh, and, and he's a Christian. Listen to what he says. 
when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe it looks as if we knew uh, if if it knew we were coming there are 15 constants the gravitational constant various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force etc that have precise values if any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million or in some cases by one part in a million million the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it matter would not have been able to coalesce there would have been no galaxies stars planets or people Now let me talk about this, okay? Let me be intellectually honest, okay? This doesn't prove that God exists. This doesn't prove God exists. But what this does do is, Tim Keller puts it like this, right? He says, imagine, uh, imagine if this is a person, right? Imagine the pulpit's a person and imagine there are 50 expert marksmen, right? They've trained for 20 years as snipers, okay? In the U.S. military, okay? And they all have a rifle pointed at this one person, okay? 50 of them lining up right here, right? Six feet away, okay? And um, the commander goes, ready, aim, fire. And all of them fire and all of them miss. The commander's like, what? What's going on here? Okay, uh, ready, aim, fire. They fire again. Expert marksmen now, six feet away. They all miss again. What's the better theory here? Is the better theory that they all missed just by chance or is the better theory that maybe they all conspired together to miss on purpose? I think the better idea is that they all conspired together to miss on purpose. Is that not a better theory? Or, or, or think about it like this, right? Imagine if we're at a poker game, right? There's six of us around the table and every single time it comes around to Eric No and I'm dealing, okay, I for some reason get a royal flush. Hmm. That seems odd. Seven times it goes around. Every single time it comes to me, I get a royal flush, and everyone else gets a uh, gets an okay hand. Okay, would would the exp the better explanation be, Eric? Just man, you're lucky, or is the better explanation, Eric? You're a cheater. You cheat. You you have cards up your sleeves. You're doing something. I don't know what, but you're up to something. The better explanation is that I'm cheating, and this is similar with the arguments of God's existence. Said, of course, we can never prove it. We have to be intellectually honest about that. But what we can say is, what are the chances that all of this happened by chance, by luck, by just things happening by accident, by coincidence, rather than there being a designer behind it all? This leads us to our third and final point, divine nature. So creation reveal God's, reveals God's eternal power. But the second is that we can determine there is something internal within, within us that senses the divine. What Paul is saying is when he says we can sense the divine nature, is he's saying, look, there's something that God has put within us that senses that the divine. Right? The way C.S. Lewis will put it is he'll say something like this. He'll say, um, if you're hungry, right, it must mean there must be something like food that exists. Right? If you're lonely, it must mean that something like love exists. Like if you crave love, love must exist. And if the human soul craves God, well, God must exist. And throughout every time, every place, and every history, right, no matter how secluded those people are, they always search beyond themselves for the divine. They've always searched for the divine. And this is that inner divine nature. But not only does it go that far, but think about it this way, right? It's what is boiled down into what they call the moral argument. And the or moral argument goes something like this. Have you ever considered why we understand right from wrong? Right, like why do you even begin to have those categories? If you are just an accident, if you are just, you know, whatever flesh, whatever, you know, just evolving or whatever. If you're just all accidents, then why do we even have these categories of right and wrong? What is that all about? Um, you know, because, okay, let's, let's take this example, okay? 
let's just say, and this is an example from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, but I'm kind of taking and riffing on it. But imagine I'm sitting on a bus, and, um, and I, I get up from my seat just for a second. I don't take very many steps out. My bag is on the floor there, so I go and I just need to pick up my cell phone. So I grab my cell phone, and I'm about to sit back down, and I notice somebody is coming and swooped right as I was about to sit down, and they sat in my seat. If you're me and you're you, most of us would say, hey, that's my seat what you're doing is wrong you're stealing my seat that's my seat and we'd be able to make this argument why because what we're doing in that moment is in some sense we're, we're saying that there's something outside of ourselves that's saying that this seat is mine we all have this agreement together that there's something outside of ourselves there's an authority outside we're, we're appealing to an authority outside of ourselves and these moral rules of right and wrong are not preferences opinion or practicalities they are moral obligations that we feel. Right? Because some people will argue, well, morality is just preferences. They're just practicalities, right? It's just practical to be a nice person because then, right? But then you're saying like it's, you're, you're, you're attributing morality to where you put your couch in the house. It's better if I put my couch here so the flow of space is like this, right? You're, you're attributing morality to a preference or to a practicality. But morality is not that. We know. Morality is an obligation, we would not say, okay, it's, yeah, it's your preference to just be a good person. No, we would never say that. We'd say you should be a good person. In fact, for example, think of, think of this, right? I think all of us would agree that no one in this planet should be like Dr. Larry Nasser. If you don't know who Dr. Larry Nasser is, let me just sum it up very quickly for you. He's a very, very bad doctor who did very, very bad things to thousands of women. I don't think I need to go any further than that. But would any of us be like, oh yeah, that's just, you know, that's just practicality. That's just preference. No, that's like an obligation. Like all of us agree that he should not be doing that to women. But where are we getting this from? Where do we get this idea of right and wrong that we all sort of agree upon? Um, listen to what Tim Keller says right here in uh, The Reason for God. And it's a little bit longer of a quote, but it's, it's sort of in a narration form. So I think you can understand this very clearly. But listen to what he says, right? He's, talking to, he's telling a story about how he's talking to this non-Christian couple. And, and, and he's essentially getting them to understand that, like, where are you getting your morality from, okay? He says this. He said, I asked them to tell me about something they felt was really, really wrong. The woman immediately spoke out against practices that marginalized women. I said, I agreed with her fully since I was a Christian uh, who believed God made all human beings. But I was curious why she thought it was wrong. She responded, women are human beings and human beings have rights. It is wrong to trample on someone's rights. Tim Keller then says, I asked her how she knew that. Puzzled, she said, well, everyone knows it's, it's wrong to violate the rights of someone. I said, most people in the world don't know that. They don't have a Western view of human rights. Imagine if someone said to you, everyone knows that women are inferior. You'd say, that's not an argument. It's just an assertion. And you'd be right. So let's start again. If there is no God, as you believe, and everyone has just evolved from animals, why would it be wrong to trample on someone's rights? Her husband responded, yes, it is true. We are just bigger brained animals, but I'd say animals have rights too. You shouldn't trample on their rights either. Then listen to what Tim Keller, you know, says back to him. I thought this was really funny. He says, I asked whether he held animals guilty for violating the rights of other animals if the stronger ones ate the weaker ones. No, I couldn't do that. So he only held human beings guilty if they trampled on the weak. Yes. Why this double standard, I asked. Why did the couple insist that human beings had to be different from animals so that they were not allowed to act as was natural to the rest of the animal world? Because if it was natural, what we would then determine is that we should act more like the animal world, shouldn't we? 
Why did the couple keep insisting that humans had this great, unique, individual dignity and worth? Why did they believe in human rights? I don't know, the woman said. I guess they are just there. That's all. Think about this for a second. Why does $100 have worth or value? It's because we give it value. It's just a piece of paper. It's garbage. If America goes away and there's no gold behind it, there's no government behind it, that $100 just becomes paper and we should burn it. We should use it to wipe our butts. It means nothing. It's worthless. In the same way, this more argument says that we have this sense of right and wrong and we attribute things like human worth and value because there is an authority outside of ourselves that gives us worth, that gives us right and wrong. Because if there is no authority, then it's up to people's own private interpretations. There is no right and wrong. There are only opinions. Because who you say, uh, who who is to say your idea of right and wrong are better than my ideas of right and wrong? You see, if there is no God, we can take this a little bit further. There is no grounds for morality at all. Look, there's something that happens in, in, in inside of Christianity and outside of Christianity, and it goes something a little bit like this. Sometimes we have uh, something painful happen to us or suffering or evil or we see something evil or something tragic happen and, and we say, man, how could a good God allow evil and suffering in this world? How can, how, can, how can God allow evil and suffering to happen in this world? And what a lot of people do is, and most people, and, and for good reasons, and I'm not trampling on this, I, I actually think that, you know, I've done this in my own personal life, and I, I've certainly seen other people do it, and so I, I get the sentiment. So I'm not saying that the sentiment is a bad one, but, but what they'll do is they'll oftentimes distance themselves from God, or they'll abandon God altogether. They'll say, I cannot believe that there is a God who allow evil and suffering to happen in this world. I'm going to abandon my faith altogether. And what C.S. Lewis would say to this is something to this effect. He would say, imagine this. How can you tell something is dark when you have no light? That's a little bit of a deep one for you, but think about this, right? Imagine you live in darkness your whole life. Would you even know what light is? Would you even know that there's something as dark and light? I don't think so. I think you would just think dark is normal, right? You have no concept of dark and light. It's only because we have light that we understand darkness. And do you see what C.S. Lewis would say is this. He would say, how can you judge something evil or good now that there is no God? You have no basis for judging that. Like, because now it's just personal preference. Now it's just an opinion. If there is no God, you can never ground evil and good. Because now it's just an opinion. Uh, listen to what he says, right? This is what C.S. Lewis actually says here. Uh, and this was one of the main reasons why C.S. Lewis converted to Christianity. He was an atheist, converted to Christianity. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. It was evil, right? All this evil. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? How did, where did I get this? Where did I get this from? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed. You see, because his argument against God was that God was evil or that there's evil and suffering. So he can't now make that argument any longer. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Uh, A.N. Wilson, who I talked about at the very beginning of this talk, listen to what he says because this is one of the things that he dealt with as well. He says, I haven't mentioned morality 
But one thing that finally put the tin hat on any aspirations to be an unbeliever, so this was kind of the, the camel that, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, in other words, was writing a book about the Wagner family and Nazi Germany and realizing how utterly incoherent were Hitler's neo-Darwinian ravings and how potent was the opposition. Neo-Darwinian ravings. This was why Hitler ended up killing thousands and thousands of Jews. And, but listen to what he says, and how potent was the opposition, because there was opposition to Hitler, okay? But guess who it came from? The opposition, much of it from Christians, paid for, not with clear intellectual victory. So in other words, Christians weren't just standing and saying like, I disagree. Look what he says. He says, but in blood, Christians died to fight against Hitler. Read Pastor Bonhoeffer's book, Ethics, and ask yourself what sort of mad world is created by those who think that ethics are purely human construct, which is what Adolf Hitler thought. Think of Bonhoeffer's serenity before he was hanged, even though he was in love and had everything to look forward to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was going to get married. He had a fiance. He had a whole life to look forward to. And yet he was hanged because he believed that this was evil to kill the Jewish people at that time in Nazi Germany. Now here's an objection. Oh, but, but Eric, everyone in the world believes different things about morality. Like there are, there are different kinds of right and wrong. Like this culture believed this was right, this culture believed this was right, and this culture believed this was wrong, and this culture believed this was wrong, right? But everyone had a different morality though. But listen to what C.S. Lewis says to this as well. He essentially says this. Look, if you study all of the different cultures around the world, he says, yes, they are different, but in essence, they're the same. If you really look deep into what their ethics and their morality is, they're actually all the same. He says, uh, we're, we're going to kind of skip over the initial parts, but he says this, think of what a totally different morality would mean. Think of a world where a totally different morality, okay? Uh, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle. Like, see you later, guys. I'm just going to save my own life. Like, think of a country where that was actually, like, honored. Or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. It doesn't exist and it's incoherent. Men have differed as regards to what people ought to, uh, what, what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone, but they have always agreed that you ought not put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. Let me try to summarize the moral argument like this. We believe that there are these immutable laws about human dignity worth without a king to oversee these laws. We live as if there is a judicial system without a judge. We live as if there is a kingdom without a king. And this is incoherent. It's incoherent. If we're living like this, there must be a king, there must be a judge, and there must be a lawgiver today. And as I mentioned today, we're not going to cover Jesus Christ. We're not going to get there quite yet. I, can't, I, I, I can just show you in one sermon that I think God is real. I think God is there. My chances, if I had to take a bet, I'm pretty sure God is there. But let me just share this with you now. I'm not going to convince you of Jesus Christ. I haven't gotten us that far yet. But I hope you stick with us, especially if you're not a believer here. If you're tuning in online or if you're listening to this via podcast, stick with us over the next few weeks. Because over the next few weeks, what I want to show you is that Jesus is this God. That he is this moral lawgiver. That Jesus Christ is all-powerful. He's eternal. And that he is God incarnate in flesh. And I want to show that to you. But I want to share with you right now is this. That all of us in this room know that there is justice that is required. 
I don't have to convince you of justice. I don't have to teach you about justice. You already know justice in your bones and in your flesh because the divine nature has been given to you. And you know in this room and online, wherever you are listening to this, you know that you've caused injustice in this world. You know you've lied. You know you've cheated. You know you've been a coward. You know you've been hypocritical. You know I've been that way. You've been that way. We've all, uh, you know, uh, asserted ourselves into this injustice. We've been complicit. We've learned this as a nation very recently, have we not? We are all a part of the injustice. And we need somebody to make it right. We need a savior who's going to make it right because we all know that justice requires a payment. If I steal $5 from you, that then doesn't just mean that you can just forgive me. Somebody has to pay the $5. Either you or me has to pay it back for there to be justice. And we all know this deep in our bodies. Our bodies cry out for justice. And what Christianity says, Jesus Christ says this, that I will take that for you. I will pay the debt for you. You owe, you owe a ton because of all the injustice you've done. And yet I will pay for that for you. On the cross, I will spill my blood. I will die the death that you should have died. I will take the punishment you should have taken. Why? Because I love you and I want to be with you. I will take all the injustices you've done and I'll place them upon my own body. But Jesus goes one step further. He says, look at all the injustices of the world. Think of the countless thousands of people who died at the hands of Adolf Hitler. Where is their justice? Think about the millions of African bodies that were shipped from Africa to North America to serve Americans and their interests so that their bodies could be beaten and used as instruments. What about their justice? What about the thousands of women who fell under Larry Nasser? What about the single mom who's abandoned to take care of their own child on their own dime? Not even these large-scale ones. What about all the mass shootings that we've seen in schools? Who's going to take care of all of these injustices? And the Bible tells us this, the scriptures tell us this, that Jesus Christ will come back and he will make all the wrongs right again. We don't know how he's God, he's eternal in power, he's divine in nature. We don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to make every wrong right again. It says that he's going to wipe every tear from every eye. And this is what Christians believe and hold to. We believe in a God who's going to make all injustices right again. I don't have to convince you that there's injustice in this world. I don't have to convince you that we require and we yearn for justice, friends. And what Christianity says is that there is a God named Jesus who's going to come to forgive you of all your injustice and come to resolve and to make right all that was lost in this creation. Look, I've been listening to a lot of testimonies on conversions to prepare for this sermon series. In fact, if you'd like to listen to some of them, I recommend a podcast to you called Side B Podcast side b like the like a tape like a i don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the tapes there's a side a side b side b podcast and um they talk about different conversion stories and um they have people share about why they converted from atheism to christianity um i also want to recommend some books to you if you want to go deeper into this you can read the reason for god by tim keller there's another great book by a woman named rebecca mclaughlin called confronting christianity 12 uh, really tough questions that christians um, ask and skeptics ask of Christianity so if you want to pick up those books you can I've been reading those books to prepare for my messages but one of the things that I found helpful in this podcast was that virtually all of them that I listened to about this testimony is of course knowledge can get you to a certain point we're going to talk about all the knowledge pieces we're going to try to get you to understand that Jesus Christ is alive and well knowledge wise but whether you're a Christian or non-Christian let me share this with you 
you're never going to understand Jesus until you experience him. You're never really going to know Jesus until you experience his love, his grace, his justice, his mercy. And so what I want to commend to you today is if you're tuning in online, you're listening on podcasts or you're here in person, whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, wherever you are on the spectrum, I want you to just pray a simple prayer. If you want to move forward in this relationship, you want to just take the next step, is maybe just pray this prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Simple prayer. Just close your eyes, clear away the distractions, and just ask Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come. Just pray that prayer throughout the week. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And I'll share this, you know, like, People ask me, what does it feel like for Jesus, for you to experience? What does it feel like, Eric? And I'll be honest, it's, it's a little bit hard to describe because it's like this, like, tell me what a good steak tastes like. Why is it so good? And I'll say, because it just tastes like cow. It tastes so good, man. You just got to try steak. Uh, and in the same way, if you're asking, what does it feel like to experience Jesus? All I can really say is this. You might feel different things. For some of you, you might feel like, man, like I'm small. I'm insignificant Co compared to this universe. Like, man, I'm so small. Like I'm just a little tiny dot in this entire universe. But yet I'm loved and I'm known. For some of you, it might be this I, feeling of being lost and being found again. Like, man, no one in the world knows you, but all of a sudden you just feel like this creator God knows you intimately and loves you deeply. For some of you, it might be, man, a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and thinking about a lot of the wrongs that you've done. And that might be a good thing initially. And maybe in a moment you might feel like, man, but I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm held. I'm secure. For some of you, it might feel like all of your anxiety, this peace that overflows in you. It might be all of your stress is gone. You're feeling like, man, everything in the world that I thought was important is not important anymore. Like, this is the most important thing now. It might feel that way to you. I don't know. But whatever the case is, I just want you to pray that prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Just pray that throughout the week. And I hope and I pray. And I've been praying for you. For those of you who are doubting, for those of you who are skeptical, for those of you who are on the mountaintops, I've been praying that you might experience Christ. Not just know something about Him, but experience His love and His grace. So friends, I want to commend that practice to you, and I'd like to pray for you right now. So let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, for those of us who are despondent, and God, maybe we experience some evil and suffering in our life, Lord, that we cannot explain and that we don't know why this is happening to us. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you minister to them right now, Lord? Would you help them to feel the warmth of your presence, the love of Christ surrounding them, the good that he has for their lives, Lord? There are some of us in this place who have been doubting Christ. We're filled with so much doubt, Lord. We don't know what to do with them. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you help us to experience your realness, your goodness, your faithfulness? Lord, for those of us in this place, Lord, who are just agnostic to the whole thing, who are just like, I don't really care. I don't really care. I'm just kind of here because somebody brought me, Lord. Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come and help us, Lord. Spark our hearts once again to have a passion for you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. 
Lord, we pray for those who are on mountaintops with you, who love you, who are serving you, who believe you're real, alive, and well, and working. Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come all the more, Lord, so that we might worship you, Lord. We thank you, God, for this time. We pray this on your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Well, at this time, would you rise as we respond to this message with worship?